Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Okay, welcome to another episode of Wild Wild Podcast. I got that right this time, uh, and this would have been the episode to really get that wrong. Uh, today we are talking about our titular film, Wild Wild Planet, and I am here with my fellow helium head, Rod Barnett. I have, uh, I have often been called many things. Helium head, never before, but it's appropriate. It's great, isn't it? They they say it at least twice, I think, in this film. Yes, yes, you, yes. You helium head. I enjoyed that so much I wrote it down. Oh, well, when uh, Tony Russell spews that out for the first time, he's, it's said with such anger. He's so pissed. He's yeah. so, he's, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, it's almost enough to make you not laugh at the line, yeah. Yeah. I like it when sci-fi, futuristic stuff, they kind of try and make up insults that might be real in the future. I mean, it's a bit like in Red Dwarf, where they keep calling each other smegheads. <laughs> yes, Which, but that one uh, was a comedy, so in a way, it, yeah. the stuff in Red Dwarf kind of works because the point is to make you laugh. So yeah, and and also it did become a real insult, and people did start using it. So I'm yeah, not I, sure know, if, I know I did. Yeah, <laughs> not sure if Helium Head really took off, um, <laughs> but maybe we can maybe we can make a, a start here and trying to bring it back. Oh yeah, that's that's not a bad idea. Helium Head, the new insult for the 21st century. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, how are you doing? Anyway, you must be up to all kinds of good film stuff these days, as usual. Um, uh, kind of, yeah, kind of eyeball deep. I've, I've, I've been remiss in recording any podcasts of my own, and now, uh, at least in in June, there were a couple of a um, couple of flubbed opportunities, and now I'm I'm scheduled up for several podcasts that are going to get recorded in this uh, in in July, and August is looking kind of weird. And then, um, man, there's just there there are lots of different things, and I'm waiting to hear back on some uh, some commentary track stuff that I'm going to be doing later in the year, and it's just uh, all kinds of uh, all kinds of projects that 
Some of them are scheduled, and you know what's going to happen, and some of them are still in the, uh, well, as soon as you hear from us, then we'll mm. need it kind of situation. Right. <laughs> and you also, um, I think just at the time of recording, I think it was last week, um, you were a guest on another podcast talking about the Polizia Teschi films. Yeah. Um, which was very enjoyable. And that, I thought that was interesting. I think you recorded that before I invited you to come onto this podcast. And uh, we are planning to do a whole Polizia Teschi season uh, soon. But I thought what you did there was a great um, kind of, what's the word I'm looking for? A, a good... Appetizer? Oh, yes, that's the word. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, well, that... a good appetizer for what's coming up. Well, that was a that was a fun thing. That's the uh, Then Is Now podcast, and uh, I, I I do recommend going over and checking that podcast out. The some of the mm. guests that fellow has gotten onto his show, man, that's impressive. But he and I, uh, and he's very upfront about this. But he's not he's not as uh, he's not as upfront with one detail about the recording of that show. We recorded it months ago, and I messed up. I recorded my uh, end of the conversation uh, very poorly. And so it took him months to figure out a way to get my audio into uh, some form of shape that it would be uh, audible and discernible. And so I, uh, you know, I, I was fully aware that uh, it, it might never, it might, he might never be able to actually put it out because uh, I just, I screwed it up. It's all my fault. Nothing mm -hmm. to do with uh, the purveyor of that particular show. That 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 was my mistake. And uh, luckily, I learned from that mistake. And uh, and uh, we'll never we'll never make that error again. But it's just so weird. I've been doing this crap for twelve you know twelve years, and I still occasionally will find a way to sabotage myself. Oh, well, at least uh, now this is why this sounds so great. You're, you're, <laughs> oh, it sounds sure. superb. Yeah, <laughs> but no, it was very. Your discussion there was very interesting. Um, I think I did tweet it on the um, Wild Wild Podcast Twitter feed. If anybody wants to find that and listen to that it's very interesting and yet yeah, you the film that you picked is one of my favorites um anyway live like a cop die like a man mm -hmm. so what i think i'll do when we get to our politiotesky season we'll just skip over that one because you've covered it already and we'll just tweet that out again and we'll we'll go straight to some of the other films but that is a truly great movie um for anybody not just italian genre fans it's just a really entertaining film I did. I did. Uh, I did have to give a hat tip to a Facebook friend Jeff Clark for describing that movie as Starsky and Hutch if they were sociopaths. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I liked the the, the your. I've forgotten his name. The the host of the show. He said that it was like Starsky and like a pre code Starsky and Hutch. Or, <laughs> you know, yes. If there were no broadcasting rules, Starsky and Hutch. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and and, mur and murder was on the agenda all the yeah. time. Yeah. In the UK, for UK viewers, I would say rather than Starsky and Hutch, the parallel is with something like The Professionals or The Sweeney. You know, we, we had a couple of very, for, for British television, very violent cop shows in the 70s yeah. that were running around London, lots of gangsters and car chases. And, but because they were quite low budget, you know, they weren't really fancy cars. They were just little crappy Alfa Romeos and stuff like that. So <laughs> it's, uh, I think they, they're quite close to some of the lower budget Poliziotesky films, those uh, British shows as well. But anyway, we're way off topic for today, but I just thought I wanted to, to mention that so people can go and check that out. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's a good sort of foreshadowing of 
of what we've got coming up. But um, I'm not trying to think if there's any other interesting Italian genre stuff. I guess since we last recorded, Severin had their big sale. Yeah. And we I think we talked last time about the um, post-apocalyptic films that they had coming out. And also since then, the book that was accompanying that sale is, all, is out. Um, I got my copy last week, I think, oh. um, which is really good, called After the World Ends, because I backed it on Kickstarter. So it was on it was on Kickstarter before I knew about it, th before Severin uh, announced it as well. Um, so that's a French book uh, translated into English, and <laughs> you can tell that it's been translated into English oh, from my. another language. But I think, you know, given the fact that most of these films are European and very often dubbed into a second language, or at least the subtitles are, it, it's sort of fitting, I think, with the genre that the language isn't always exactly how you would have phrased something. It's quite fun to uh, to read that. But yeah, so I got the book and I got the um, the end game soundtrack on CD and I've also got it coming on vinyl, which is pretty cool. Cool. Um, but also Severin, uh, quite I think it was after we recorded, they announced that they were doing the uh, Blood for Dracula 4K restoration. So that's pretty big Italian genre news because that um, and then it's its co-feature Flesh of Frankenstein, which has been announced as coming out from Vinegar Syndrome. So these two genre films that have been top of a lot of people's lists for decades are finally getting really good legitimate releases because they've been very hard to see for a long time yeah yeah and interestingly enough those two films have a, an antonio margariti connection that is oh, yeah. still uh, still talked about and debated to this day so yeah. <laughs> yes highly contested yes uh which is um speak i don't think we'll ever truly get to the bottom of that but what what um what is what i am looking forward to on at least on the extras that they've announced for for blood for dracula they have got an interview with paul morrissey so it'll be interesting whether he gets asked about that to see if he has anything to say but given how much he um dismisses andy warhol's involvement and claims it's all his own work i imagine that he would also dismiss the suggestion that anyone else <laughs> anyone oh, else yeah. helped out so i would uh, uh, i would bet money on that on that supposition yeah, yes so I imagine we'll never truly know just how much Margariti was involved. But uh, but anyway, I am really looking forward to getting my copy of that when it finally arrives. Uh, I haven't seen that film since I was about 17. Um, so, yeah. My, and I, my, my main memories of that film are the, um, the rude bits. <laughs> I think because I was only 17, that's the bit I really remember. <laughs> Um, rather than any of the horror bits or the plot, ah. or the or the fact that Vittorio De Sica is in it, which I'd completely forgotten about. Hmm. Um, so, um, but I do remember Joe D'Alessandro uh, having to take everybody's virginity before um, before Dracula gets to them or something. Yes, uh, yes, indeed. <laughs> so, something to look forward to there. But so, uh, very excited that we've got to this week. We've been working our way through the the history of italians in space and um we get to it's not necessarily the best film but certainly one of my favorites in this particular genre hmm. uh wild wild planet as it was released in america otherwise uh well, i should say 
that's the name that it's most known by through its American release. Uh, the Italian title is I Criminali della Galassia, which is uh, basically the criminals from space, I think. Or criminals um, of the galaxy. Or crim Sorry, yeah, of not space. See, I, I'm looking at it right in front of me and I still got that wrong. <laughs> criminals from the galaxy, you're right. Um, I've even got this, I've got a poster on my wall downstairs, an original Italian poster with... Uh, the Italian title on and then I still messed it up. Well, that's, that's 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 amazing. That makes us the perfect people to talk about this because I have the American poster on my wall frame. Oh, nice. Well, yeah. let's try and let's try and tweet both of those out. Oh, I'll be glad uh, to. Yeah. I, I it's really it's uh, cool. it's hanging uh, it's hanging in the stairwell uh, in my house here. It's uh, it's one of my prized uh, prized yeah. bits of movie poster artwork. I think it's astonishing. That is very cool. So, um who was it that put that out? Wasn't it? Was it MGM? Yes, it was MGM. Yes, in in America, that's very cool. Um, yeah. So this now you, I know you know a lot about a lot more about these movies than me, and you've done podcasts on. Have you podcasted about this one? I know you've covered some of the other. Uh, yeah, Cameron I've actually films. podcasted about this one. This one? Um, right. I did it. I I covered it uh, several years ago with uh, uh, Derek Cook over on Monster Kid Radio. Oh, yeah. And that was um, it. Yeah, yeah. You haven't. You didn't do it on Bloody Pit, did you? No, no. Uh, mainly because we, uh, we, we, uh, because I'd already done the one on mm. that, that particular one. We, okay. we did, uh, we did a couple of the others. You know, there, there, there are four in this run, and I think the only yes. one that I haven't podcasted about so far is Snow Devils, and and I okay. will eventually get to that one, probably yeah. with you, possibly. Yeah. Um, I mean, the reason I didn't, I didn't. I can say with okay let's just let me just take a step back so this film is known as uh it's one of the gamma one quadrilogy mm -hmm. so margariti made four films back to back apparently with a budget of around thirty thousand dollars per film um he shot each film uh in about now i read i did read this and i'm trying to find how long it was it's about two or three weeks per movie yeah they've got um similar characters a lot of the same actors pop in and out sets costumes and so on although some of the character names do change so they're not necessarily all part of the same story but they kind of are they're all based around they're all somehow connected to the gamma one um space station although we only see that for about five minutes in this film and then they go somewhere else and snow devils which is one of the other films is set primarily in the Himalayas <laughs> and it's about the guys going to look for the Yeti or and the Yeti is an alien if I remember rightly it's been a while since I've watched that one um, but uh, yes yeah, so you've got these four movies and the plan was and it sort of varies depending on what you read but they there was a deal with uh, with MGM they were going to make these films for Italian television but then the cinema rights were picked up for it to be shown in cinemas in America. So I think in Italy, they were all... This is where I get confused, because there are cinema posters. As I mentioned, I've got one. So I think it did get seen in cinemas in Italy, as well as... So that's what made me think maybe it was for uh, American television. But then you look at the American release, and it got cinema releases in America as well. So you've got a poster for that. Yeah. So it seems to have got cinematic releases, despite originally being made for television. And it maybe it did get shown on television as well. 
Well, it's, see, there's a I'm lot of the, confused. Yeah, exactly. The confusing part of this is that there's so many different. I mean, there, there, there's there are conflicting bits of information trying to uh, trying to determine uh, the original intent for producing the movies in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the you know the, the budget and the the length of time and. And when it you know when it was done and and why there are you know of the four there are two that uh, that star in the leads a pair of actors and then in the other two films it's it, they 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 uh, switch characters and there's and, mm-hmm. and switch actors uh, it's because the two were made back to back and then there was a slight pause and then they they brought in uh, you know the, and then there were the other two that were made and so essentially the it's it's as if uh, Gamma One got you know, got new commanding officers essentially, and uh, the the all of these details you can find and are fairly agreed upon. But the whole idea of the the one thing that seems to be a a constant hang up is the were they originally thought to be produced for television and then taken to cinemas, or was there an idea that it would be, go to television in one country? But cinema, cinemas, and another country—that's where it gets really iffy and weird. But yeah, I mean, there is—you know—they—they they did get released to cinemas in Italy and in America, and I think in Britain too. Although I don't know if there's any proof of that. Mm. No, well, um, Wild Wild. So in terms of cinema releases, yes, Wild Wild Planet did get a UK release. Okay, but good. not not until 1967, mm-hmm. um, whereas it was—I think it came out elsewhere in 1966 right so it took a little bit longer to come here and, and and it was rated x can you believe i mean really? it's basically a film for kids yeah god i don't know why um i don't have the um the details for that but was it, it the creepy get... was it the creepy room of freaks or the four-armed guy or what mm, it does make you wonder doesn't it i'm assuming there's also if you think about the beginning of the movie we'll go through a plot summary in a moment but um we see quite close to the beginning a whole load of um human organs there's brains there's eyeballs yeah, there's lungs yeah. and it's it's quite graphic for what is ostensibly you'd think is a kids movie and then yeah you've got this room full of um horribly deformed people for some reason um, well see that's that's just it this is i mean it would be easy to argue that these films especially this one is essentially kind of a, a jumped up 60s version of a buck rogers serial kind of all crammed into 90 minutes but mm-hmm. the, there are elements within it that just scream oh we're in italy <laughs> that would be the uh yeah you know the 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 lungs that are that are on you know on a table breathing you know on their own and uh, miniaturized organs uh, laid out with tubes leading to them, and a room full of apparently just apparently just uh, medical mistakes that this doctor keeps around just to remind himself that he can make mistakes. It's it's yeah. I'm just going to keep this room full of people um, who are all you know medical freaks. <laughs> it's 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 it insane, and I love the over. The, okay, weird. well, another thing that could be adding to you know one country or another deciding that the that the material within it is is something that needs to be only viewed by adults is the uh, over the top reactions of our dear lead character Mike Halstead played by Tony Russell anytime he encounters something that isn't standard normal you know human shaped in any way shape or form he acts as if someone just 
you know, farted or something. He acts as if there's some horrendous smell emanating from whatever he's looking at. And it's just this hideous thing. Oh my God. And I'm thinking to myself, it's a guy with four arms. I'm more fascinated than appalled, man. Come on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a couple of moments like that. Isn't there's another one when they discover shrunken people in a suitcase. Yeah. And the guy just like, it's like he has some kind of breakdown and starts (laughs) screaming. It's horrible. It's terrible. Yeah. And they're like, get him out of here. I'm like, well, it's just kind of cool. I don't know about (laughs) horrifying. Yeah, I I would not be repulsed. I would be leaning toward it, trying to see, is this real? Is this a real Mm -hmm. thing? Or is this something, you know? Yeah, it's pretty funny. But we should probably go back to the beginning. Ah, So, yes, so we mentioned, so there are four films in this quadrilogy. So the first one, in terms of their release dates, Again, it's difficult to know the order they're supposed to be in because they don't really follow each other. But according to Matt Blake in the book Science Fiction Italian Style, uh, the release dates were that War of the Planets came out first, then Wild Wild Planet, then War Between the Planets, and then the very uh, odd um, Snow Devils, which doesn't really fit with them very much at all. Um, I read somewhere, and I wish I've never been able to find where I read this, that they were filming, and this might just be made up by somebody, and that's why I can't find it again, that they were filming these uh, together rather than shooting one, then shooting the other one, and you know, back to back, that they were shooting scenes for one, then scenes for the other one, and that they were colour-coding the uh, clapperboards so that they knew which shots were for which of the four movies. Yeah, I read that somewhere, but I don't know if that's true because I've looked and looked and looked and I can't find where I read it. Like I say, I think that that's probably true, but I think that it was more likely that they were shooting two of them at a time, they, that they paired mm-hmm. them up. Yeah. Um, and that would explain, you know, like I say, to go along with the uh, the changes in the in the cast. Um, mm-hmm. And that, 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 is, that would make it something, you know, much more easy to handle rather than trying to do four different scripts at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, um, so it's Antonio Margariti again doing what he does best. Um, we've seen a little we've, you know, we've covered one of his films um, a couple of episodes ago which was um, Mission, oh, what was it called now? Oh, Mission Operation, uh, I'm, so, Operation I'm sorry, Assignment Outer Space How did that say? I knew it was Mission Assignment Operation <laughs> it had a Euro spy feel to it and so yeah, so that was um, so he made that film in 1960 and then he's done a few Peplum films he's done a few gothic horror films and now he's back to i mean war of the um the, the whole gamma one quadrilogy are probably his some of his most well-known films and wild wild planet is probably the most well-known mm-hmm. of the four um i wanted to mention again that um somebody who worked on these films with margariti was Ruggiero deodato which brings us back to the discussion we just had about live like a cop die like a man yeah so Diodato, um, I don't think he's credited, but he was working um, with Margariti. Margariti was a great friend of his and really helped him out at the beginning of his career. And so he worked with him on several films. We, You and I, four years ago now, I think, talked about Hercules, Prisoner of Evil, which is um, right. a, a Margariti Peplum film that Diodato actually directed. And um, I interviewed, I was lucky enough to interview Deodato about 10 years ago, and it was very cool. And I talked to him about his work on those early films, um, 
and how and he did he said what a great friend Margarity was and when he started making his own movies if he was stuck on something he would call Margarity and he'd give him advice and so I, I did ask him about Wild Wild Planet and it, I mean he, our, our interview was very short and being translated back and forth because he doesn't speak English very much so um, the gist of it was that he was there and he helped out with the shooting of the miniatures stuff mm -hmm. if I remember right um, but um, yeah he had quite fond memories of it and what also is another good connection there is that this film features a very young and extremely well cheekboned uh, Franco Nero as Jake <laughs> yes. and of course Franco Nero was also in Django around this time uh, which Deodato also worked on so it's all these things seem to connect <laughs> which is nice but yeah it's uh, I'd forgotten Franco Nero was in this I think the first time I watched it I didn't recognize him and this time I was like oh there's Franco Nero oh and well actually, each, each time that I've I forced my poor my poor my poor dear sweet Beth to watch this movie with me, uh, which happened, of course, again a couple of nights ago. Uh, yes. She she's she you know she's she's game for this stuff, but as soon as she realized Franco Nero was in it, she's like, oh, she's completely on board. She's... Mm. Yeah, he's in it more than I remembered that he was. He's actually uh, he's in. He does he gets to do several fun things? He gets to get beaten up by uh, Lieutenant Connie Gomez mm -hmm. uh, when she's demonstrating her karate skills and. He gets to shoot a flamethrower. Yeah, <laughs> they've got these laser guns, which are basically just pocket flamethrowers, which or well, the pocket welding blowtorches or something. It's pretty funny. But as uh, as ray guns go, they're pretty effective for, for yeah, what they need to be. Yeah, exactly. This beats the you know this this is not your typical blaster. This is a, a pocket blowtorch, which looks really dangerous because the actors really are shooting quite hot flame out the end of these guns. <laughs> And there's at least one shot where if you look closely, you can see the gas cable coming out of the uh, the, the end of the gun mm -hmm. down into their pocket and then presumably off to some gas canister just behind them, um, feeding the flames there, which I thought was quite funny. Don't break the illusion, Adrian. Don't Sorry. break the illusion. Yeah. Anyway, shall we talk about the <laughs> plot? Let's, let's get to the story. Well, this the, this is one thing. Before we launch into the plot, I just oh, yeah. I have to admit that one of my favorite things about this is the the movie poster art, and I have to say that the the things that are listed on the American version, uh, this movie does not skimp. It everything mm. that it promises is going to be in the movie is in the movie, and these are the six things oh, that yes. uh, that it, it lays out. It says uh, the laser ray girls, mm -hmm. four arm strangler, menacing yeah. mutants. Mm. The Deadly Doll Men, Flesh Fusion Experiments, and Armada of Spaceships. Now, I, I, I saved that one for last because I don't know about Armada. I, I don't know how many <laughs> ships would constitute an actual Armada. So maybe they don't quite make that one. But the other yeah. five, they're in yeah. the movie, people. We can't, I mean, yeah, we, we could go through that list. I mean, Laser Ray Girls, there are definitely girls in the film. Although, if you look at the poster, the, the poster is brilliant. It's got these girls in silver bikinis and th like thigh high, well, knee high purple leather boots holding these uh, machine gun type ray guns. We don't see that in the movie, unfortunately. Um, there are girls, but then, yeah, not silver bikinis with um, machine guns. 
I mean, I don't even I don't even remember seeing any of the girls holding guns at all. So there are girls, but yeah, the laser bit is perhaps a bit of an exaggeration. The four armed strangler, there's actually several of those. So the the poster promise is one, and we get more than one. There are the menacing mutants. They mean they're I don't know about menacing. They're more just kind of sad. <laughs> they're just sad mutants. The deadly doll men. That's quite funny because. They're pretty much asleep. Uh, the doll men. Yeah. Um, there are definitely flesh fusion experiments. We'll give them that one. And yeah, the armada of spaceships is perhaps a bit of an exaggeration. I mean, the poster, the American poster art is fabulous. I'm very jealous that you've got one of those. The Italian poster art is completely different. Um, although, but again, uh, slightly exaggerates the truth as well. Um but yeah, on the poster, you've got uh, explosions in space and there's loads of guys with jetpacks firing laser guns in space. Um, one thing that is interesting in the poster is right in the middle behind the bikini babes, you've got one of the butterfly dancers, um, which is an odd image until you've seen the movie and then it makes sense. Um, but yeah, no. <laughs> no but yeah it's one of the best uh it's one of the best posters and it, it's the it, i use i don't have one of one of those but the um that poster art is the wallpaper on my antonio margariti blog um which i can now plug i suppose i've got a good excuse so if you go to bloggeriti.blogspot.com that's b-l-o-g-h-e-r-i-t-i -I, you can see my occasionally updated Antonio Margariti blog. So I've had Wild Wild Planet as the background art for that the whole time, although I haven't actually written anything about Wild Wild Planet yet on there. <laughs> so I will get to that eventually. Um, but yeah, that, that artwork is fine. So what I thought I would do is I'll use our, the, our friend Matt Blake here uh, to give us a plot summary of Wild Wild Planet and then we'll see what we remember or what we want to mention as we go through. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think the, it's interesting the uh, the plot, the, the title differences. Obviously the, the Italian one is um, the criminals from the galaxy and the American one, Wild Wild Planet, I think much better captures the uh, the feel of the film uh, because they do actually go to a planet where things are pretty wild. Yeah. So, um, uh, but yeah, anyway, so. <laughs> well, right. I and I think it's odd considering that uh, it does appear that the reason they titled it that was a, an attempt to capitalize on the success of Wild Wild West, the television mm. series. Oh, that's true. Yeah, I'd forgotten about Wild which Wild is, West. Which is, I, I, it, it's such an obvious thing once someone points it out, but it's just really, really kind of bizarre because it does fit this mm -hmm. in that it is, uh, it's wild, it's way out. Yeah. 
I'm not sure how big a show Wild Wild West was. It was, it was huge. I mean, it was on the air for, yeah. it was a huge ratings hit for about yeah. five years. Yeah. I, I don't know if it ever was picked up in, particularly in the UK. I'm not sure whether that title would have made, would have meant much to the British audiences. But at least, I mean, it also makes sense to put the name Planet in there because obviously we've had War of the Planets and then Wild Wild Planet and then we get War Between the Planets. And the trouble with those names, especially War of the Planets and War Between the Planets, is these titles come up in slightly different forms with other films and it starts to get really confusing yes. about which films you've seen and so on, as, we're, as we will see when we get to our next episode in a couple of weeks. Um, but anyway, so here we go. Let's go. Go for it. Gamma 1. Oh, the... Uh, I'm trying to remember character names. So the space station Gamma 1, which is being run by commander mike halstead uh played by tony russell who is um is he american he is american isn't he he does and seem he to be to, yeah he does seem yeah to, you, do you mean the actor or the character yes well the actor he he, oh, went he was to, yes he was an american yes he went to italy and um just worked in tons of italian movies like so many guys did back then well, yeah uh, and he also he ended up in the mid-60s um kind of uh being one of the founders and president of the uh, english language dubbers association there in italy he uh-huh. he did a lot you it, there are a lot of movies where you're hearing his voice that he in oh, and you're not right. seeing him that makes sense i wonder if was that with um mel wells was he with that because i know he I, had I a think company so, dub, yeah. dubbing films in italy as well around the same time perhaps it was but yeah actually um so Tony Russell only actually died four years ago at the age of 91, mm-hmm. which is pretty impressive. But yeah, so he and I mean, he looked old in this film. So that's pretty good going. <laughs> um, I think he's just one of those guys kind of in the uh, in the 1950s and 60s. Men seem to look a lot older than they than they actually were. Like He was probably only about 35, but he looks like he's pushing 60. Well, there are some um, people who just look ancient. It's like this weird yeah. thing when you learn that Wilford Brimley, when he made the movie Cocoon, was in his fifties. It's like he yeah. looks like he's. It looks like he's hundred and six. You know. It's... I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, oh yeah. So we've got him. He's the kind of commander in charge. He's running Gamma One. Uh, he's got a girlfriend up on Gamma One, which is Connie, played by Lisa Gastoni, who, who seems to spend most of her time training people training women how to th- fling men over their shoulders and well then primarily how to fling franco nero around yeah yeah how to throw them on the grounds and then step on their throats that seems to be their main uh, their main form of self-defense which is quite fun so meanwhile they've got professor nermi up there uh played by massimo serato he is part of the intergalactic research conglomerate cbm which i don't think we ever find out what cbm stands for but they just refer to it all the time as the corporation. Oh, yeah, I, so, thought we, I thought we did find out what that. Oh, did we? Maybe we did. Yeah, it's something it, like, uh, gosh darn. Um, I'm not sure, but it reminded know. me of the. It reminded me of Wayland Utani, the way they keep calling <laughs> yes. it the corporation. It's like the you know, the evil guys in Alien who, uh, who just don't care who dies as long as they. I know get they to use they immediately coded in such a way that it sounds ominous and yeah. Yeah the corporation so yeah so you've got the evil corporation there and um professor nermi is uh for some reason he's he's doing this site he's got to do these scientific experiments in space he's creating art he's got artificially created organs which could 
could be used to cure illness and increase the human lifespan. So this is where we see all these close-ups of brains in jars with eyeballs attached and lungs breathing on their own. And it's quite, I mean, I think this is probably why they just slapped an X on it here in the UK, because it's um, pretty graphic for what is otherwise basically an episode of um, UFO or Space 1999. <laughs> um, but yeah, we've got all this stuff going on. And um, Commander Halstead is not impressed. He thinks that the humans should just be allowed to uh, be humans. Whereas... Yes, he likes he likes people the way they are now. Uh, yeah, and, and that's one of the that's one of the funnier things uh, to me. I, I love the uh, the aspect of the um, the commanding officer who's who's essentially such a su- such a of, a of such a conservative mindset that. Any scientific advance that would impinge upon the human form is a, is a simply abhorrent. It's, it's it's one of those things where it's like I know that we have to kind of have some kind of conflict, but shouldn't the conflict grow out of something other than you know sheer revulsion at the slightest deviation from the human norm? I mean, it's bizarre. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? And um, what's interesting is. Although this is supposed to be, I can't remember what I'm really doing a very bad job at presenting this. I can't remember when exactly we're supposed to be in the future or if they actually give a date. But we're, well, I keep we're significantly seeing in different descriptions people giving the date as like 20, mm. 2015. But I, can, oh, okay. I, I don't know that I, I, I can't remember if that's said outright within no, well, the that's, body I'm not of sure the film. if it is. I mean, it certainly appears to be several hundred years into the future, yeah. given the kind of technology that they're using. But it's interesting that it's all about transplantation when, obviously, in the 60s, this was a big deal. Yeah. We, we, the first heart transplant was um, the year after this film came out, 1967. And there was a lot of discussion at the time, the ethics of transplantation, like what if you're putting somebody else, a part of somebody else who died into you what does that mean about the soul mm. and does part of that person's i mean this all goes back to things like the hands of orlock you know oh, if yeah. you receive a, a transplantation for somebody else's body does that then mean that their personality becomes part of yours and there are all sorts of stories about people who've had transplants who then start to like the kind of music that they then discover the person whose heart they got was into and there's all these sort of interesting ethical and and spiritual discussions about transplants so i think this film uh, that must be on purpose that they've they've picked up on that because this is obviously what was going on and particularly in a very religious country uh like italy the thought about the soul and your identity and how that connects with things like transplantation that must have been in their minds yeah um when they wrote this because it's pretty explicit that they bring up this debate right there in the first five minutes about the ethics of transplantation, even though in this film they appear to be artificial rather than whipped out of somebody. But it still looks like, you know, the kind of setup that they've got, the bit with the brain and the eyeballs, just reminded me of Reanimator or um, like Bride of Reanimator when he's just slapping bits together and making little things. Like he's got a, in Reanimator, he's got a, an eyeball attached to a hand yes. that's running around the house and and then it, at the end we see all we see his own cupboard of um mistakes come to life and animated horribly, yes yeah so it, it's interesting that this is kind of tying in with with that debate 
Um, but anyway, so he's got all this stuff growing and I'm not entirely sure why it needs to be on Gamma 1, but it's because basically the corporation said so. Um, so he gives, so the, the commander gives Nermi a tour and uh, they they go to Connie's um, karate judo lab, whatever uh, whatever they are, where she's throwing Franco Nero around the room. And um, uh, and Nermi is such a sleaze, like, oh, you have such a perfect body. Or, and, you know, he's, I want to get to know it better. And they're really awful pickup lines. <laughs> but then he's he's like, oh, no, I'm you know, purely scientific interest. And he's basically spots her body as being the pinnacle of female evolution. And he, he's got evil intent, but which we, as we later find out, but she's just kind of flattered by this interest because I think Commander Halstead is a bit cold towards her, even though they're supposedly going out. So she's like, yeah, sure, because I think she wants to make him jealous. So then we see them dancing. There's some brilliant futuristic music and dancing in the uh, Gamma One nightclub. Yeah, and, 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 and if anyone has any doubts, by the way, about the, uh, um, shall we say, the sexual politics of relationships mm -hmm. between men and women presented in this film, it's completely the 1950s and 1960s here. It's, <laughs> it's every, everything that you would imagine uh, as an attitude uh, from either side of the gender coin is going to be exactly what's on screen. The 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 cliches the, the cliches abound i mean it's 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 kind of hilarious you know and and the uh the don't don't get me wrong i mean it's probably a good idea to just surmise from where you're sitting in the mid 60s that these kinds of attitudes are going or at least these kinds of relationship dynamics are going to continue on into the future because of course you can look to the past and see that to some degree or another they exist there as well but it's the presentation of them that just it's it's like ah yes the early 60s where men were men mm. and women knew their damned places mm. although at least um as i think i mentioned this before at least none of the uh the women have to just make the men cups of tea so True. at least we've moved on a little bit from um it the terror beyond space or but but lisa gastoni's character <laughs> she's the only female character in the entire movie that that has any real characterization you have all of the yeah. um well we'll get to them later on but yes this, she's I'm the, not I mean, sure I, huh no i was gonna say i'm not sure what if those other women are even real women exactly slightly, exactly slightly confusing but yeah she's she's a proper character for the first 20 minutes or so and then she kind of just becomes a victim yeah, she becomes um, what the plot needs her to be, essentially. Yeah, but so this beginning bit here, she's making, she's trying to make Halstead jealous by dancing with Nermi, and it's pretty funny. Um, and then she happens to mention that she's going on leave. She's going to go back to Earth for a holiday, and Nermi's all like, "Oh no, you should come to the planet. Uh, what is it Delphos? I think it is. Um, it's really you. Know, I can get you a, a free holiday, courtesy of the corporation, where they'll be." you know, spas and, um, I don't know, knitting clubs, whatever it is you women want to do. This is like <laughs> sell it, selling it as this perfect holiday for her to go and, go and relax and have a really lovely time in Delphos. And um, so, of course, she says, hey, free holiday. I'm totally down with that. And Mike is annoyed, but he starts to have other problems to worry about. So he kind of forgets a little bit mm. about her. 
because strange things are going on back on Earth. So we leave Gamma 1 and then we don't really go back to it, I don't think. I think that's it. For well, no, no, I mean, we, or we do have, we go we, back later? Do we, do, we, do we go back to Gamma 1? No, I don't think we I'm do. Sure. I think there, a, a, yeah. a good bit of this movie, more than on, uh, more than on the, the, uh, the other two that aren't Snow Devils, we spend yeah. a lot of time uh, on uh, on Earth, and uh, it's, mm. I, I tend to forget that because what the Im- you know the images that stick in your mind are of the uh, the sometimes good, sometimes passable special effects work and all the yeah. stuff that happens you know on the space station and in space. But yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, we spend a lot of time on Earth, which I think is is very well handled, and it, it adds yeah. a lot. I mean, it adds a lot to the film, and it kind of opens it up. The best miniatures stuff in this film is the futuristic earth city that they go down to mm-hmm. and it's absolutely fabulous it looks like the it's basically the jetsons uh you've got <laughs> yeah. all these fr- you've got these freeways with futuristic cars whizzing along them there's ufos oh well you know flying saucers well, i should say saucers, they're yeah. not ufos they're just their vehicles they look like flying saucers flying around around these massive buildings and they're just yeah the miniature work is so great and uh, it's like it, it, it's like a futuristic train set is what it looks like they've built. <laughs> yeah. It's brilliant. So we do. So when they go to Earth, we get these brilliant scenes sequences of the miniatures. So anyway, so back on Earth, people are going missing. Uh, quite a lot of people are just disappearing, and they tend to all be either eminent scientists, child geniuses, military people, beautiful women. They're all just vanishing. And nobody really has a clue. There are no witnesses, nothing. So um, Halstead gets sent to um, go and kind of lead the team. Yeah. yeah, lead the team that is investigating this. So he basically becomes a police squad of some kind, a detective. I'm not entirely sure why the commander of a space station. I think their jobs are just very interchangeable. So the command, he's this commander of the space station, but now he's leading a detective squad. Yeah, there, there's a lot anyway. of there's a lot of uh, kind of oh, there, there's a lot of verbiage between those characters at that conference table, where yeah. you have like the Halstead's boss essentially saying, "Well, this isn't really our business," you know. And when mm. it becomes our business, give us a call, and then uh, someone saying, "Well, you know, let, let's assign Halstead, who I, from his title is, yeah. I, I guess, in the military." So they just say, "Well, look, we need to put him. Well, let's put him in charge of this investigation." And yeah, and I suppose because military people have gone missing, then there's yeah. a kind of crossover there. But so he's starting to look into it. He's very happy to accept this because he wants to get away from the bad atmosphere on Gamma One, basically meaning because he hates Professor Nermi <laughs> and he's annoyed that Nermi is making moves on his woman. Exactly. So. Um, He's great. He's going to stay on Earth and do some investigation. But then we get this sequence. So we get to see some of the things I really love about this film are the cars. We get to see them driving around in these fabulous bubble cars. Yeah. Um, that are really cool. But what they look like if you were really inside one of those on a sunny day, you would fry. <laughs> yes, because there's no cover at all. Yeah. No, it's just a big plexiglass dome over you. But they look really cool. And they're, they're proper cars. They're driving them around. Mm-hmm. Um, they are really fun those things so um, but we, we see um, I think we see a couple of clues as to what's going on when there are these guys wearing they're all identical they're wearing they're bald they're wearing sunglasses they've got leather 
trench coats on and they're carrying a suitcase and they're walking around with a beautiful woman and they go up to somebody and then he kind of puts his coat around them and then they disappear mm-hmm. and then you just see them close the suitcase and walk off so we've seen that happen a couple of times already at this point so we know that that must be how people are, dis- are being made to you know people are being kidnapped but then we see one of these things go wrong where um there's a i think it's a, a, a there's a scientist and they start doing it to him but then they see a girl who shouts grandfather i think yeah they get interrupted time. during the process and yeah so they run off and they just leave and the woman that's with this guy with the sunglasses says you failed and she like does something to him and he just disappears well, he um, yeah, his the body disappears and his clothing just yeah, his collapses on the ground. Behind, yeah. And then she jumps into her bubble car and drives off. Um, and then meanwhile, we've got this this the guy that was Professor Freed, I think he was. He's now a dwarf <laughs> uh, because he's only been shrunken halfway. Yes, um, which is and he which is a through line. They carry this character through to the very end of the movie. It's yeah, bizarre. they do. He's in the comedy payoff at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, but, oh yeah, but the, the woman has also strangled his granddaughter. It looks like he's, she's dead as well, which is I a, think bit, so, yeah. a bit shocking. So she strangled the granddaughter and then just Wait left a minute, wait a half. minute. Death of a child. Would death of a child be a reason to give a film an X certificate? Well, it's possible because, again, that's, that's a bit more violence than you would expect yeah. uh, in a film of this type. So she's dead and the professor sees this and passes out. And then, so um, he ends up in a hospital and Halstead um, is brought to to see him, um, and they're all really shocked. They can't work out how he could be half the size that he used to be. But he's in a coma, so they can't actually. <laughs> Halstead just keeps shouting at him, Professor, <laughs> Professor. Like, no, he's in a coma, Professor. <laughs> like, he can't hear you, Professor. Like, it's not going to work. It's like that's his main interrogation technique. Yeah, I don't, I don't want I don't want the film to give the impression that Mr. Halstead or Commander Halstead is is meant is mentally inferior. But man, come on! <laughs> and then, but they take him out to the corridor, and then they've got another one of these bald guys in sunglasses on a on a stretcher, and he's dead. I'm not sure. I can't remember where they got him from, but this is where they pull the sheet back, and uh, he's got this is the guy with four arms. So it turns yeah. out that these. These guys are the reason they're wearing long coats is because they've got one pair of arms outside and another pair of arms inside to do the shrinking. I guess. Um, so I think that's why they've been they've been genetically engineered or, or operated on, but they don't appear to be real people because they all I think we're supposed to think they're clones or something because they all look identical. Yeah, and they're um, they're they're quite they they they're they're. They seem to be artificially created in some yeah. form or fashion, although they they never use the term clone. But yeah. no, because we see them back on Delphos creating these guys and putting them into these uh, big crates to get shipped back to Earth. Um, so somehow they've got one of these guys, and this is where uh, this is where one of the women that's with them starts, you know, oh, it's horrible, and <laughs> running away. <laughs> yes, and so they're all looking at this guy, trying to figure out what's going on. And I think this is when um, Halstead starts to suspect that Nermi must be involved. It's like, hmm, who do I know who's a scientist who's experimenting with the human form? Uh, well, there's one. There's this guy that I know who I'm also jealous of 
Yeah, I was about to say it does. It does so, ring of uh, it does ring of motivated reasoning, doesn't it? Yeah, <laughs> so it must be him. But nobody will believe him. Uh, no one takes his accusation seriously because he's got no proof. Get your love life um, in order, Halstead. My God. Yeah, that's that's a line he, that I wish was in the film. <laughs> yeah, because he, he he goes to the theater at this point. I think this is when it is. I'm going off script here because this plot summary is very short, but I think this is might be where he goes to the theater because he knows that that's where Nermi is going to be, mm-hmm. and we see we I think we see it twice in the movie, but this yeah, is the this second is the time. second this is the second time we're introduced and, to this uh, this bizarre butterfly theater yeah. action yeah. And um, interestingly, the one of the dancers in the butterfly dance is. Um, oh, you mean Archie? Yes. So yeah, it's um, Archie Savage, mm-hmm. who w- we saw back in Assignment Out of Space. He is one of the dancers here. And apparently, he choreo- he he was the choreographer of this this bit uh, of uh, yeah. strange modern dance yeah. as well. So yeah, they're dancing. They they call it a theatre. But it's more like there's a kind of raised section in the middle of the room and then all the audience are standing around the outside just watching these three or four people dancing around like butterflies. And, it, uh, and to be honest, it would have been... I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm assuming they're they're doing it this way because this is some kind of futuristic way of, of presenting, you know, kind of theater in the round. Yeah. But if they had... Uh, if, if the... Uh, people watching the uh, dancing were less well lit than the people on the stage. I think it might have been an even more interesting looking sequence. Yes. Well, that's it. Yeah, it doesn't really look like a theater. It's like they're all just standing around in a lobby. Right. Because which might be where they filmed it. It looks like they've shot it in some kind of big lobby build in a building somewhere, and just stuck a quick stage in the middle. Uh, yeah, because the lighting doesn't make it feel like a theatrical performance which is a little bit odd. It reminded me of, the, have you ever seen Moon Zero 2? Yes. The Hammer film. There's some dance sequences in there as well where there's a kind of nightclub on the moon and it sort of reminded me a bit of the um, the cabaret performances from that, uh, which was fun. But the music in this one is a bit more, they're dancing to classical music rather than 60s sci-fi pop. Um, but yeah, and it turns out that, uh, so Nermi is there at the show and so Halstead follows him and Nermi kind of legs it upstairs with, I think he's with the woman who was one of the people trying to kidnap Professor Freed yeah. and who the one who failed. So he takes her with him upstairs and he goes into one of the dressing rooms of the theatre and then he says, you failed. I can't, you know, I can't take imperfection. And he stabs her with something and she just shrinks and disappears and she's gone just as Halstead walks in and Nermi is just casually picking up her clothes and hanging them on the rail uh, next to, um, with all the other clothes. And it's a bit weird. It's like, well, what is he doing in here anyway? Because I think they're followed by a bunch of these other guys because then this is where Halstead is making his accusation, but there's no evidence. And Nermi's just killed this woman or, I don't know. Or done away with her in some way, yeah. If she's one of his creations, he's just kind of dissolved her. It's this. There's weird space science going on here that we don't understand. The the biomedical um, realities of this thing are beyond us all. There's a fun moment when Halstead is looking, and he he goes into the wrong dressing room, and there's all these women in their bras going ah, and he's like, "Oh, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry." Uh, As that was very funny. 
uh, like a it, classic. It's it, yeah, it's a it's a classic <laughs> thing of that type, and it's and it's kind of it's it's kind of bizarre that, that that that's stuck in there. But it does it does add to it does add to the sequence a little bit. I have to admit, it's kind mm. of amusing. So eventually, um, Halstead figures out that there's something going on, and it must be to do with Delphos, the planet that Nermi has talked about before. And he knows that Connie is in Delphos, so he's saying to Nermi. What have you done with Connie? Where is she? Well, see, this is perfect for Halstead. He has found a way Mm. to combine personal and work life in a single thing. Exactly. And it's perfect for us in the audience as well that we uh, get all these things nicely brought together. (laughs) Because meanwhile, we have seen a little bit of what has happened to Connie on Delphos. She She arrives there and then she basically walks with this woman. She's like, oh, I'm here on holiday. But instead she's pushed she's brought through this area where they're building these weird uh four-armed guys yeah and then she's taken into a room she says here's your room have a nice day and then they just lock her in she's basically just walked into her own prison and then she's she's trapped in there but then later on we see them experimenting or they're, they're um, doing some kind of physical examination on her and they're all like oh yeah she's perfect mm. okay. and then uh what is it she's perfect for well, the camera pans across the room and then pushes in to a picture that's just lying there very casually to show us what the what they are planning for Connie. Um, I don't know, Rod, would you like to try and explain what yeah. Connie's what Connie's fate is to be? Well, from the uh, from the image that we're given, which is uh, a face which is half. Uh, Doctor Doctor Nur- uh, Nurmi and half uh, our our beloved uh, <laughs> our beloved Connie Gomez. The uh, the idea seems to if, if, the first time you see this movie, you're like, wait, wait, are they going to like saw them in half and and sew them I together? <laughs> is that the is that the whole point? Because that's what the image yeah. is telling me. But no, of yeah. course, it's 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 stranger than that, and and much more. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to use air quotes here believable because the concept Mm. is to take what they have deemed to be the perfect male specimen and the perfect female specimen and to merge them together into one body and of course this is is to be done as some sort of kind of bio bio merging yeah now do you think that they got this from the final program see that's i don't know i can't remember exactly when the final program was published now that i think about it see i, I got to thinking about that as well because that is very much what um uh mrs Bruner is up to in the that first jerry cornelius novel from michael moorcock but i i, I can't remember exactly when the novel was published mm. and the thing is as strange as this may sound this is not exactly this is not exactly a concept that had not popped up in uh science fiction already the mm. the concept um, of um, engineering the ultimate human and it having to be of course you know because this is the most this is the most obvious thing that would occur if you if your brain goes down this particular side side road yeah well there would have to be half human it would have i mean it would have to be half male half female right i mean there's it, to, to be the ultimate human it can't just be one gender or the other because you can't function without one without the other so it would have to be a single individual and it's to me, it's 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 interesting because it is this uh, it is this idea that uh, has popped up in science fiction in, in a blue bajillion different ways. Um, not as much anymore because uh, 
I, I think that the, 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 the obvious drawbacks of it become more and more clear the more you think down that road. But the, uh, the, merging, the, the, the merging together the, the kind of single individual, is, it's always an interesting dis, kind of distortion or descendant from the, the whole idea of Frankenstein in the first place. The idea of mm. creation, creating life or creating a version of life that, uh, that you know, that doesn't, you know, that, that the, the reproduction of life or the creation of life did not involve the actual uh, act of uh, sexual intercourse. It's not mm. the normal formation of life. You're creating some new thing that is self-sufficient in and of itself, uh, like the, the Frankenstein monster. And it, it becomes this, um, you know, in other words, it goes that far back, the idea, not, of course, the merging of a male and a female but i do find mm. it fascinating uh it's it's uh it's, it's given uh it's given much more of an apocalyptic interesting uh variation by michael moorcock in the final program but this is uh like i say the confusion here about well they're gonna saw them in half are we gonna have two different people one you know left side male right side male depending on which one you're looking at it's the the, the the and plus there's the there's that mystery of okay well if you're merging two human bodies let's just say that they're you know they have you know they, they both weigh 150 pounds well then do you have a 300 pound creature is this what yeah. we're talking about i mean where does all that extra mass go or do you, or you just slough the the excess off to one yeah. side and create like a i don't know a mini me what is this yeah some some bars of soap <laughs> some bars of soap <laughs> Oh, there's a there's a Fight Club sequel. There you go. Yeah, the uh, what I thought was interesting that image of the the two of them kind of cut together. I'm pretty sure that remind that reminded me of the poster for Glenn or Glenda. Yeah, um, exactly. Or yeah, one of those. Yeah. You know, I swapped my sex. I changed my sex. There was a few of those sex change films in the 50s, and it kind of reminded me of some of the marketing for that. The, the sort of face split in half. And also, uh, years ago, I remember a friend of my dad's who had a beard he shaved half of it off mm-hmm. right down the middle so that he could go to a fancy dress party as a half man half woman and he had a beard on one half and makeup on the other half nice and it was very confusing so yeah it looked, <laughs> looked quite a lot like this that's pretty funny so yeah so Nermi is ex- he wants to create some kind of futuristic perfect human race uh in this sort of typical mad science vein but he's i don't know he seems to be prepared to push himself forward for that quite early on yes. in his uh, I mean he says he's been working on it for about 20 years or something but you still think you'd want to run a few more tests first but nope he's ready to do a body body merging with her straight away he's got the he's got the equipment ready and everything so um, so yeah so Halstead legs it to oh no wait he gets there's a bit where he gets arrested I can't remember why now he's in trouble and he gets uh, sent, he gets confined to quarters. Yes. Um, and so Franco Nero has to come and rescue him in their little red hover, hovering spacecraft. Yeah, Halstead makes it, it makes it very clear that he is going to charge forward and, and uh, go, yeah. you know, and, and do what he thinks is best. And the, uh, the powers that be, his, his superiors uh, decide that, uh, no, you can't do that. And so they put him under house arrest and then... yeah. He uh, he arranges to uh, have Franco Nero and a couple of the other uh, uh, military guys bust him out. Yeah, there's, it's great. He leaps out of the window and jumps onto a step ladder, not step ladder, rope ladder, rope ladder, yeah. and hang. He's he's hanging beneath this little red flying craft, and we just get all these shots of it. We're still whizzing around, 
And I'm thinking, any second now, he's just going to smack against a building when he's dead. <laughs> well, one, one of the things I love is that, okay, you have the, we have those shots. I mean, and, and people, you know, some of the special effects in this movie work wonderfully. I mean, it's all, it's all, it's all the same kind of, um, uh, of special effects that you're, you remember this film is, is made on a, on a very tight budget. They didn't have a lot mm. of money. These are uh, what they could accomplish at the time. And so they're going for, you know, they're going for a style over quality to a large degree. And mm-hmm. but the, the the shots of the uh, the little doll figure that is supposed to be Mike Halstead dangling from the the rope ladder from the little miniature red spacecraft hanging over the city is is amazing. And what kills me is that um, this is these are the same kinds of tricks that Margariti would still be using to de- to good effect uh, <laughs> all the way up into the eighties. Because uh, I'll never forget when I finally had the ability to still step through certain sequences of Yor, the Hunter from the Future. And discover mm-hmm. that there are some there are some shots where Yor is a, a, essentially a little doll. Yeah, this bit reminded me. This bit reminded me of Pag doing his um, uh, his mm-hmm. aerial uh, acrobatic routine at the exactly. end of Yor, uh, swinging <laughs> swinging across uh, this big thing, and he's just like hanging upside down on a little. Correct, correct. This is this, this is the kind of thing yeah, I'm talking about. I'm yeah. Sorry, yeah, I cut off, cut you off there, but yeah, I was definitely thinking the same thing as you. I think. <laughs> I, I love I love it, but I, I can understand why it's 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 an element of these films that easily that, that easily can be sneered at and is often I would say most of the time sneered at because yeah no the the special effects are not you know quote unquote believable they're they're part of what you're watching and they're part of you know you have to get into the spirit of the damn thing or you're just i mean why are you bothering yeah and exactly and let's not forget that stanley kubrick on the back of these films asked margariti for advice when Mm -hmm. he was doing 2001 so he was clearly impressed and if it's good enough for kubrick it, it should be good enough for all of us um so yeah anyway we so she is in trouble (laughs) <laughs> yeah, she's in she's in quite a lot of trouble one of the um, one of the funnier things when we were watching it the other night is that when she's you know you, you you talked about how they they get to delphus and uh she's shown to her room and then locked inside it and of course she thinks she's going on a vacation and the the funny thing is that beth just turned to me and she goes well the first thing i would ask is hey where's the where's the swimming pool i'm here on vacation and i was like and i i looked at her and i said you don't remember this movie very well you don't want to be anywhere near this swimming pool i know yeah because oh yeah because they've got this he's got this big computer that's running the whole show and the computer appears to be running on like basically liquefied um bits of people but not he says they're not people they're just the cast-offs from his experience because he's growing female female he's growing just (laughs) body parts in general female or male he's growing body parts and then the stuff that gets rejected gets fed to the computer so the computer appears to be running on this big lake that's this red lake of liquefied or i don't know is it some kind it's, of it, acid well it seems to me dissolving to be body parts of, uh, it seems to me that it the idea is that it's just biomass that mm. that can be used for whatever he wants to use it for in other words which is it's very good from an environmental point of view that's quite good he's not wasting it <laughs> yes exactly I mean, it's uh it's you know apparently useful for various and sundry things i mean I'm, I'm assuming this is what he's you know he's he's squirting into a giant mold to make his forearm men as, as you know as well as the various women who accompany them mm-hmm. but you know I, I, the fact that you have to uh 
I don't think that he can create the biomass from nothing. So that's you know that's where all the kidnapping comes yeah. into play. Yeah, because he's kid. So yeah, so oh yeah, I'd forgotten. There's so many things going on in this film. It's quite it's easy to it's crammed with so much bizarre yeah. detail. <laughs> There's so many different things going on all the damn time. I mean, we almost have to. You almost, okay, let's acknowledge something right now, dear listener. It would be possible for us to do a full twenty minutes just delineating any 10 minute section of this movie and going through the details that are on Mm. screen and that are kind of being fed to us through the narrative. And it's not that it's some kind of super richly dense plot or some super convoluted or complex storyline. It's that they're really throwing everything they can into this movie. And, uh, in in a way that it almost makes, uh, the other movies in the series, pale by comparison because it's almost as if they threw so many ideas into this movie that they were then they were able they were not able to like (laughs) utilize some of those ideas and in later movies and so they kind of suffer a little bit yeah i mean there's enough ideas in this film for all four of the films yeah and 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 stuff just i mean i love this movie but it's so much of it doesn't make sense so (laughs) that we mentioned before about all the kidnappings and they appear to be taking people back to delphos Mm-hmm. so that they can be part of these experiments into creating this master race basically and there's there's definitely strong overtones of fascism and oh, yeah. these sort of nazi ideas of the master race which of course for italians were only you know we're only 20 years after the fall of fascism in italy so that's still quite fresh in a lot of people's minds all of that stuff yeah but um so the reason but it, it seems to be that getting to delphos from earth is quite easy like it doesn't take very long to get anywhere in this galaxy but they're they're shrinking people i think just to make it easier to smuggle them out and get them back to delphos so the shrinking isn't part of the great scheme of things it just seems to be a way to sneak people out in a suitcase um because when we get to delphos we see some of the people including general maitland who is the big cheese that commander halstead has been looking for he's he's there he's back to normal size again and um so because halstead races to delphos but then all of his men get caught and gassed and, <laughs> yes um nermi is gonna is gonna use them in his experiments but he decides that they're all rejects uh, none of them are good enough for his experiments but uh, which again not entirely sure what his criteria is but uh, but he captures halstead and decides just like any good bond villain i'm going to give you a complete tour of my lair <laughs> explain to you how my diabolical plan yeah tell you the plan explain to you how all the technology works point out the very obvious um you know ventilation shafts in the death star uh (laughs) where you can just drop something in and blow the whole thing up i'm gonna make it really easy for you to beat me later on here goes and then he just takes halstead around and shows him everything uh include and this is where we get to see the uh the, the digesting computer machine yeah um and it's pretty clear that all you've got to do is throw something at the computer and you can basically bring down the whole lot because, you know, it's basically just made of glass tubes and uh, light bulbs. So um, so this is when Halstead finds out what's going on with Connie and he manages to meet back up with Franco Nero and we get to witness, this is the culmination, we're kind of going to spoil everything here, but this is the culmination where we're going to get to witness Nermi merging himself in some partly undescribed way to Connie. Yeah. Connie is is wheeled out 
um, in her underwear and then put on the, she's on this sort of trolley and then Nermi has been gassed and put he's asleep and he's wheeled out on another trolley and then they have this big it's like a big it's almost like a religious ceremony this big glass covers for their trolleys comes down from the ceiling and is put over both of them as we're going to start this merging process that we don't fully know yeah. how it's going to work um and meanwhile mike mike halstead and franco nero and his other friends are all like oh what are we going to do what are we going to do and of course what is what are we going to do to defeat the galaxy's leading science just start punching people in the face and so <laughs> yes. mike it always and his, wor- it's always worked before yeah so mike and his guys just basically start a fight and that stops the experiment from happening and ultimately leads to something being thrown at the computer which i think in a in an ironic twist nermi throws something at mike but misses mike and just smashes his own computer and <laughs> which of course causes a chain reaction and in good james bond villains headquarters style the whole place ultimately gets flooded by this lake of hu- of human slurry it's <laughs> a good way to put it yeah. <laughs> yeah and we just see all these scientists going ah and kind of dissolving in uh in in there and um and mike and his friends have to escape will they escape to survive to the next movie i'll leave you on a slight cliffhanger with that <laughs> but but basically basically yes um and there's everything very uh in the book um matt blake points out the similarities between this and the euro spy film and it is basically yeah. a euro spy film just set in space but you know obviously like i mentioned the whole bond villain thing is just straight out of uh any euro spy movie but then also most euro spy films end with your heroes ne- next to a swimming pool drinking cocktails in their little shorts uh, admiring the girls walking past in bikinis and exactly the same thing happens here mm-hmm. so um that is quite funny and franco nero what is he wearing he's I, wearing I this okay this, this cannot go unremarked um <laughs> franco nero who is at the, the point he made this movie he is he is uh, he's one year away from being an international star uh as as django all right mm. so he's he's a year away from being an international sex symbol for the next, I don't know, forever. Mm. And in this scene next to the pool, is he dressed like Commander Mark, uh, Commander Halstead? Is he is he sitting there in a in a one piece uh, bikini showing off his physique? No, he is in <laughs> what can be best described as a blue baby onesie yeah. <laughs> that covers as much of his body as possible. And it is it is such an odd choice. I really wish that this was available in HD because it looks to me, and I can't tell because what we're looking at on the Warner Archive, I should have mentioned earlier, this is available Warner Archive DVD taken from what looks like a print in their collection rather than a decent negative. So yeah. it's hard to tell, but it looks to me like this thing he's wearing is hand knitted. It looks like one of those weird knitted jumpsuit, <laughs> swimming suit things that were briefly popular in the 60s. Maybe. It's very odd. And yeah, he, he is quite a sight. I mean, he's a very good looking man. And he was only about 24, 25 at this point. 
because I know when they did Django, he was too young for the part, mm-hmm. and they aged they aged him up with um, with makeup to make him look older than he was. So in this film, it's a bit of a shock because you're like, hang on, this he's the same age here as when he does Django, but he he looks significantly younger in this film to the point where you might not even recognize him at first. Yeah. But yeah, he's he's wearing an extraordinary swimming costume. Um, I'm just I'm glad he's kept it dry because I'm not sure how well it would stay together if he did jump in the pool. Um, I would love I yeah. would love to be able to I'm of course that person who has all these bizarre questions for people who are still kicking who made movies, you know, decades ago. And I hate I hate to say it. I know he would probably not be able to remember unless there's something that just stuck in his mind about it. But I swear to you, within ten minutes of ask of meeting Franco Nero and having the opportunity to ask him, I would be asking him about the damn blue onesie. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, "Oh yes, I've still got it on." And he whips his shirt <laughs> open, and there it is. Um, now I have to confess, I have met Franco Nero. Oh, did you ask him um, about the blue baby onesie? But no, I forgot. See, that's, that's see, opportunity shame. missed, Adrian. Yeah, I, um, I was, I, I was lucky enough to be because he was the guest at uh, the Cine Excess uh, kind of academic film festival several years ago. Him and Vanessa Redgrave, uh, his his wife, um, is Vanessa Redgrave, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, they're married. Um, so they were both there, and they so as well as being a guest of the festival because it was being organized by Brunel University, they gave him and Vanessa honorary doctorates. And so they had a full full ceremony. Both him and Vanessa both gave speeches and they were awarded these honorary doctorates. It was amazing. And I took pictures. They're on the... um, I'll tweet these pictures out. They're on Cinema Retro's website. Um, So he was quite busy that day and he's he's wearing the full mortarboarding gown and everything. So I just managed to get my D, my my Blu-ray, the Blue Underground Blu-ray of Django signed. Um, cool. So I didn't really get to talk to him or ask him any specific questions about these films, which I really wish I'd loved, I could have done. But um, yeah, it was pretty cool to actually get to meet him. And this is before he was in Django Unchained and before he had this kind of revival again um, that he's experiencing in the last few years. But yeah, very cool to have been in the same room as Franco Nero. Yeah, I can he only seemed, I can only imagine, yeah. Yeah, he seems like a very nice guy. But yeah, sadly, I didn't get to find out what he was wearing under his robes. <laughs> and and where, where, whether he still uses it. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me with some of these films are so cheap that they're wearing their own, their own clothes. Oh, who the, knows? For the yeah. film. <laughs> And and so Margarita just tells them all to just turn up in whatever they normally wear when they go to the pool. <laughs> and he's like, "Really? You sure you want to wear that? Yeah, it'll be fine." Yeah. Why not? Why not? So yes, everybody, if you haven't seen Wild Wild Planet, get the DVD from Warner Archive. I mean, there's probably it's probably on YouTube. I haven't checked. Oh, um, I don't. I don't know. I don't think so. Mainly because know. I'd uh, hope. I would hope not because it is. You should get the DVD if you can. Oh well, uh, um, one thing before we go, um, I've always uh, when when I dig into these movies, and of course I've 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 dug into the Gamma One movies over and over again for I don't know twenty years. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I used to own this stinking movie on Blu-ray. I mean, not on Blu-ray. For God, I wish I did own it on Blu-ray. I used to own it on Laserdisc. Uh, that's how far oh, back right. I go with this 
would you know it's like wow what what are you going to put it out on next and i'll buy it essentially yeah. but the uh one of the, one of the things about the movie is you'll notice that the scriptwriter one of the one of the people listed as a as a scriptwriter for this is a guy named Ivan Rayner. Oh yes, uh, and uh, there, there's been a if you look at his IMDb credits you'll notice that it's these films and then he gets a producer credit on the uh, the kind of a side gamma one film produced in Japan in 1968 called The Green Slime. Uh, and there's really that, that's really about the extent of his uh, of his list of credits. I mean the uh, what you have is uh, apparently an adaptation for a TV series in 1949 called The Clock, uh, the four Gamma One films, and then a story credit on The Green Slime and a producer on those films and also a producer on The Terror Beneath the Sea from 1966, the uh, Sonny Chiba film. And that's it, right? right? Well, for years, people were people were curious as to whether or not Ivan Rayner was a real person or if it was kind of a pseudonym that, you know, one of those many things that can get caught in the IMDb trap of no one having enough knowledge of who these people were, you know, what, who, who might've been hiding behind a pseudonym. But it turns out that, uh, several years ago, like almost 15 years ago, God, we're getting old. Um, uh, the, the mystery of who Ivan Rayner might be was finally solved when uh, Tim Lucas was able to actually ask Sam Sherman, the uh, producer, who uh, who uh, or a distributor, I should say, who who brought a lot of uh, classic stuff over from Europe, uh, especially mm-hmm. he worked with Andy Milligan and he did a lot of uh, he brought over like oh, wow. the um, he brought over uh, uh, the Mark of uh, the Wolfman and turned it into Frankenstein's Bloody Terror, the first of uh, Nash's oh, yeah. werewolf films back in the late '60s. But uh, Sam Sherman uh, knew who he was. He sa- uh, the quote from uh, Sam Sherman is, I knew Ivan, and I can tell you a little about him. He was, in fact, a New Yorker who lived in New York City and was originally the program director for WOR-TV Channel 9 in Secaucus, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. He later worked with a film distributor by the name of Walter M- Manley, who had film distribution deals with companies all around the world, including the United States, Italy, and Japan. Um Turns out that that's who Ivan Rayner is. <laughs> mm. uh, and so, essentially, you have these movies made in Italy, partially financed by MGM, written by a guy who worked in television in New Jersey. Huh. That's so bizarre. It's insane. I mean, that must have come about through the fact that this had part funding from America then. Yep. Yep, mm-hmm. and the fact yeah. that you know this was just you know the, I'm sure someone said, "Hey, do we have anybody who uh, has any has any ability to write uh, science fiction plot lines? We need a we need a, mm-hmm. we need about uh, I don't and know, call quick. it four scripts." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean it's so yeah, it would be so good, and I don't want to be the person to do this, but it would be so good if somebody properly dug into this stuff and you know, to the level of detail that Tim Lucas did for Mario Barber stuff. Yeah, he I agree. Interviewed almost everybody except the guy that Mario Barber bought his shoes from. But like you know, <laughs> the, the level of research there was incredible. I don't think anybody will ever do that level of research again on anyone else. But it would be so good to to know how some of this stuff came together. But there have been magazine articles about these films. Cinema Retro yeah. ran a feature on them a couple of years ago, and there's a magazine here in the UK called Starburst that had a feature on these films as well about a year or so ago um, which was pretty good but again mostly those articles are just analysing the films themselves rather than digging into this stuff to that kind of degree so there are so there's a lot of detail that we'll never know there, there is a book 
about Margariti that does go through his films uh, called Dan's Macabre. Um, but unfortunately, it's entirely in Italian. Yeah. Um, I have it. I'm holding it in my hand now. It's by Fabio Giovanni. But my, um, I can't read it yet, so I don't know. I, I, I'm desperate for someone to translate that. Yeah, English, yeah. it would be so good. Um, I bought this from Luigi Cosi uh, in his shop in Italy, and he did tell me he said, "Oh, but it's you know, it's in Italian." I was like, "It's fine. I'm going to buy it anyway, just because it's the only book that there is specifically about Margariti." But just flicking through it again, it doesn't look that detailed in terms of research. It looks primarily like it's mainly just describing all the films i don't think there's that much background information on all of them so yeah so that level of research is yet to be done which is a shame yeah and some of these people are still alive i mean you know this, yeah. th- th- these people are there and can you know can could be interviewed and talked to about this kind of stuff mm. information po- you know possibly information gleaned i mean yeah it was you know 50 slash 60 years ago but hey come on yeah well, that's it. But anyway, but all we can do is point people towards the movies at this point and also to the to what is available to read. Um, again, I do recommend Matt Blake's book, Science Fiction Italian Style, which has, was, was my whole inspiration for starting this podcast in the first place. So do go and check that one out. Um, I think we've thoroughly covered <laughs> Wild Wild Planet today. I'm going to try and stick in some of the music uh, in here as well that the, the soundtrack is quite fun um, uh, not quite as experimental and sort of spacey as you might hope but again they were working very quickly into very low budgets and they didn't have a lot of time to to do the kind of extra stuff that you might hope for in a sci-fi movie but they they did a great job visually it's just so fun it's it's a it you know we talked about um planet of the vampires last time and and what barva pulled off on a low budget yeah this is also being pulled off on a low budget but in a very different direction well an even an even smaller budget well yeah and he had a much much smaller studios as well that had had less facilities than chinachito and this was at de paola studios in rome which were quite small uh compared to chinachito so he's he's got less resources around him and um, but he's doing things in a in a different way. I mean, whereas Barva was creating a, a kind of planet landscape with a few pools of bubbling water and some rocks and a smoke machine, here Margariti builds a whole city, um, which is really cool to see. He also shoots, they have some scenes on Earth where it looks like they just went to some factory on the outskirts of Rome, and uh, which doesn't really match at all visually with the rest of what we see of Earth, the sort of studio stuff that they do and the miniatures. So it, it jars a little bit, but, you know, it doesn't matter. No, but I, I found it to be kind of effective because, the, you know, yeah. that kind of industrial look, once you're, you know, yeah. once you're inside on the sets, it's like, okay, well, that's, you know, it's what the outside of it looked like. And now we're in, you know, now mm. we're in an interior. It's, uh, yeah, it kind of adds to the texture of the whole thing. And bring, But I suppose it, because most, well, most of what we're seeing are sets, very futuristic uh-huh. sort of star trek style sets whenever they actually they're just outside on a street on a road in the countryside somewhere or in this factory it kind of takes you out of it a little bit i think because you've almost forgotten about what reality looks like because we're so <laughs> used to all the the artificiality of the rest of the movie but, but anyway uh, yeah, it's yeah. it's fun it's fine <laughs> 
it's really I, good fun so i didn't want to do oh sorry go on oh well i just wanted to say that strangely enough uh there there have been some songs that have been uh inspired by this particular movie and oh. one of the most interesting is by a band called several mouth parts uh, okay i know i know that's I know that's strange, but in 2018 they did a song called "Wild Wild Planet," and there's no there's no way to dispute that that is uh, what this uh, what what was inspired what inspired this song. I mean, the the lyrics are about the movie. So, okay, I'm gonna have to see if I can look that up. I would recommend it. To, it I would recommend it to everyone. The band is Several Mouth Parts. It's on the album Moonlight Drive. It is the last track, and it is. Oh. Uh, it, if once you see the movie, the song is uh, pretty pretty straightforward. Yeah. <laughs> Great. I'll drop a bit of it on here. Thanks for the tip. I had never even heard of that. Um, yeah. So, although because we're doing ten space films in this season, um, so Wild Wild Planet is our representative from the Gamma One quadrilogy so do yeah. go and find all the other films are available two of the two of the other movies are with um the warner archive and then one of them i don't know why for kind of rights and distribution reasons at the time i guess one of the four films fell to somebody else so unfortunately that means we're, we're never probably going to get a box set of all four films no because of that not. one movie i forget which way i forget which one it is i think it might be war between the planets that is with somebody else but yes it's I, war I between the planets that yeah. for, for some reason has been released on dvd by some other company yeah yeah but they're they're all available do check out the whole bunch of them and then as you just mentioned before go you can go and watch its kind of companion film in unofficial companion film which is of course the green slime um which has a lot of similarities to uh, to this film as well and is um, uh, actually available on blu-ray Yes, and that's a really fun one as well. Although that's not that's more that's Japanese, but is is some people think of it as a as a film that's part of the Gamma One uh, quadrilogy. But I think it's it's it's, it's kind it, of connected, it's, but it's not yeah. really part of the Gamma One. But it's, it, imagine that it's all in the same universe. Like if you were flying past Gamma <laughs> One and then turn right at Jupiter, head a few more million miles, and you'll find the green slime. Hang a left at Delphus, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and you'll find the green slime over there. Okay, thank you, uh, Rod, for doing this again. And um, unfortunately, in our next episode, we're perhaps going to find less positive things to say <laughs> about that film than we did about this one. But Probably, hey, yes. Know, it's all, um, it swings and roundabouts with... Uh, ups and downs with Italian, with Italian uh, genre movies but hey it's you know the highs are very high the lows are extraordinarily are low. low yeah but, so that's something to that's a real tease for you all everybody to something to look forward to next time <laughs> is a, a film that's not very good but anyway thank you all for listening you can uh, follow us on Instagram and on Twitter uh, all the links are in the show notes for this episode so I won't bore you with them here Please tell your friends, give us a review, all the usual begging stuff that you hear at the end of every podcast. It does really help. Rod, thank you so much for doing this again, and I will talk to you again soon. And everybody, thank you for listening, and uh, go away now and start call start calling everybody you meet a helium head, and let's see if we can get it to catch on. Oh, that would be that would be wonderful. Okay, bye bye.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.